This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. This is the Intelligence Matters Podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Sponsored by Raytheon. America, it is still and hopefully will be the most important democracy in the world. Always looking to this model of the United States democracy as a country for prosperity is the one you want to see you know in a country like like mine do you characterize how you see what is happening in venezuela the venezuela reality is uh, a one that everybody should be warned of through democracy they destroy democracy the case of nicaragua is not so far from the one in venezuela there's a pattern we cannot underestimate this anymore and the regimes that will come with similar behavior need to be watched. Juan Carlos Pinzon is a prominent member of Colombian society. He was a close aide to Colombian President Juan Manuel Santos, and he served as his country's Minister of Defense from 2011 to 2015 and as its ambassador in Washington from 2015 to 2017. Juan Carlos unsuccessfully ran for the presidency of Colombia earlier this year. During his career in the Colombian government, Juan Carlos worked closely with U.S. officials on the full range of national security issues in Latin America. I just had a chance to catch up with Juan Carlos to talk about a set of issues that do not get enough attention in Washington. We'll be right back with that conversation after a word from our sponsor. This is Intelligence Matters, and I'm Michael Morell. From training warfighters to modernizing platforms to defeating UAVs with lines of code, Raytheon is working across networks, markets, and continents to protect every side of cyber. Raytheon, making the world a safer place. Juan Carlos, it is always good to see you, and it is an honor to have you on the show. Well, thank you, Mike. Great to be here, and by the way, thank you for your years of service. Thank you very much. You serve our region as well. You know, you serve your country, but certainly you contribute to democracy, you know, and development in Latin America. On your own duty. Thank you very much. Juan Carlos, I think it's actually very important that you're on the show. We spend a lot of time on intelligence matters talking about Russia, China, North Korea, the Middle East, terrorism. And we don't spend enough time, in my view, talking about issues in Latin America, about our own neighborhood. And I think we're going to take a step forward to correcting that today. So I'm, I'm really excited that you're here. 
I want to start with a story that I think you'll remember. Um, When I was the deputy director at CIA, I visited Colombia for a few days. I met with your president. I met with all sorts of security officials, including you. You were then serving as defense minister. And on the day I left to fly back to Washington, you showed up unannounced at the airport to see me off. I don't know if you remember that or not. (laughs) What I wanted to ask you is why did you do that? I don't think it was because I was Michael Morell or I was the deputy director of CIA. I think it had to do with how important you saw your country's relationship with the United States. And it's a fact of life, you know. Uh, uh, For me, all the time, having this wonderful partnership with the United States was a big opportunity, but also a reality we had to nourish all the time. And at the end, of course, a strategic relationship is based on national interests, mutual for nations, or for leaders, if you want. But at the end, it's about personal relations. It's about trust. It's about really being able to work together. The United States was, you know, committing themselves, all of you, for our success. And definitely, my job was to contribute to success in my country, to honor my soldiers, to honor my policemen, to make them succeed. So establishing personal relations at the end allowed that we could deliver. Sometimes operational art is the most difficult thing ever. You might have the right strategy. You might have the right set of assets for a tactical performance. But if you don't integrate, you know, wills, ways, means, all capabilities at once, suddenly you might not be effective. So, yes, I always wanted to have a close connection with everybody that was really you know, doing everything for our country as well. And, and you did, by the way. Yeah, you know, in the, um, in the intelligence business and in intelligence relationships between countries, trust is the currency. <laughs> you know, it absolutely is the currency. The more trust there is, the more you can do together. No doubt. That's a fact. Um, Juan Carlos, uh, before we dig into the key issues in the region, I wanted to ask you a couple of questions about your background. You grew up the son of a military officer, a colonel in the Colombian army. How did that affect your life, your worldview, what you decided to do? Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, no doubt it was a great honor to grow into our Colombian military military units. In fact, you know, I'm, I'm what is described these days as an army rat. That's what I was, you know, living all around my country and seeing the sacrifice, the commitment of very good men, very good people for our country with very uh, little budget, with a lot, a lot of limitations. And I learned that from, from the beginning. Second, I have to say, in my case, beyond my father, you know, I come from a long tradition of military servicemen who served the country even at wartime uh, in different times of Colombian history. And then there was an interesting point as well. The United States has these set of programs for military-to-military education. And I came to the United States being, you know, under 10. I I think I was 8 or 9 when we first established here in the United States for one of these courses that my father was invited to take here in the U.S. you remember where it was? It was at uh, San Antonio, Texas. I remember first place was Lackland Air Force Base and then for for Belvoir, very close to... 
D.C. area, actually. And uh, that was very important to our life. Even my wife had the same experience. My wife as well is the daughter of uh, an army colonel in Colombia. And she had mostly the same experience I did at Fort Benning. So I'm telling this story because, of course, that created connections, you know, appreciation for the efforts and sacrifice of servicemen, understanding of my own country, but in addition to that, a close understanding and relationship with the United States. Your father uh, must have been very proud um, <laughs> when you became defense minister. I think he was, although he was as well critical, you know. Military men never stop being that, you know, right. even if they retire for a long time. And he was always, you know, giving a very prudent and very careful uh, messaging on his view <laughs> of my performance. But I know he was very proud. That's great. You also spent a lot of time in the United States. You mentioned you were here as a kid. You studied at Princeton. You studied at Harvard, Johns Hopkins. Uh, you also worked at the World Bank. How did that time in America shape your worldview? America has been, it is still, and hopefully will be, a, the most important democracy in the world. And that implies many lessons. First of all, the fact of equality, the fact of access of opportunities for everyone, the opportunity to succeed, the opportunity to, you know, have entrepreneurship as a way of life. Those things were very important. But also I understand that rule of law is connected to all these as a real base for progress, development, and economic growth. Every time I went back and forth from the United States to my own country, one of the things I'm convinced is that Colombia is a country with a large endowment. First of all, we have 50 million people. We are a large country. We're, we are the size of Texas and California together. And even you can put other small states onto that. It's not a small country. 50 million right. people is a big one. It's one-sixth of the U.S. population. Sure. Significant, yes. But at the same time, we have, you know, several advantages. We are a country plenty of water, plenty of biodiversity, plenty of natural resources, with a young population, with a very resilient society, because despite all the violence and all the crimes we have seen, the country was always able to prevail and we have moved forward. So always looking to this model of the United States as a democracy, as a, as a country for prosperity, is the one you want to see, you know, in a country like, like mine. Of course, every country is different. Every culture has its own facts and realities. But no doubt. It influenced my view of the world and on the way we can advance to the future. Okay, Juan Carlos, the issues, and maybe the place to start with the one that is perhaps freshest for you, the peace process in Colombia. You've been critical of your government's approach to the peace process and have, I think, paid a political price for that. I want to ask you a couple of questions about that. Maybe the first is why... Why were you critical? What do you think should have been done instead? And how worried are you going forward here? Well, first, I never opposed to the idea of a negotiated peace. By the way, the use of force has its limitations. And certainly, when our country was at real risk of really being out of control by the national state, 
the use of force was the real only last tool we had to recover the country and to establish a rule of law and to really define territorial control in parts of the country that honestly we didn't have. Defeating the capabilities of a guerrilla that was the largest guerrilla ever in Latin America and the most wealthy guerrilla, at least that I know in Latin America, maybe in the world, that was purely funded by drug trafficking, kidnapping, and in addition to that, even illegal mining, was a real endeavor. Of course, when I think about that, I always remember the, the good men of Colombia who died for the country, who got wounded for the country, and that we will have to honor them forever. But certainly, we understood that all that was going to result into a peace dialogue that should end into a peace agreement. My concerns and differences with the government started when I thought that we started to offer concessions that, in my opinion, were going to be a high price to pay and especially will have consequences in the time of peace as a risk actually to hold peace. One example, narcotics. Narcotics were, has been, in a way, the source of all diseases of Colombia. It creates corruption, it creates, it funds terrorism, it funds uh, all kinds of crimes, and it even creates a distorted economic reality. So, you know, being very effective against narcotics in Colombia is a matter of national security. And offering concessions onto that was going to be risky. I'm sad to tell, but history now is on my side in the sense that Unfortunately, it proved that by removing the policies we had, instead of ending the business of drugs, it has multiplied by four mm. since I make that kind of warning, if you want. Second... So the, the FARC is back in the drug business in a major way? I think some of them keep the business of, of, of coca, and there are no other players now. Mm. So the scenario becomes challenging. I don't think it's the end of the world. I don't think we are in the position we were 10 years ago, but we have a new challenge. And we better tackle that challenge before, you know, the progress of these years might get at risk. Right. That's one point. The second point was offering political space to people that was involved into crimes against humanity. I think it's fair not to make them in jail. You know, you have to, you know... It's hard to swallow, but at the end it was, you know, you had to negotiate something. You cannot offer, you know, the other side, okay, you're going to get a, a surprise, a, a life sentence in jail. You maybe said, all right, you don't go to jail, but you don't go to Congress. You don't get more benefits. You will have to have a very a careful and cautious life. Well, they were granted with seats in Congress. They were granted with no penalty as of today. Of course, there's a transitional justice court in the middle of uh, creating a, a justice process, but it will take many years. And in the meantime, there's the sense that nothing happened to them, only prices. So I think that was too much for values uh, to, to offer. And finally, in a way, they got more than they ever got during wartime. Even in certain territories, they never got the level of control 
of territories that now by being allowed to plan on development programs, they have. And I believe that was too much. So by saying that, yes, you, you were going to say I'm, something. I'm, I was going to ask for the what you see as the macro consequences of all of those things you just listed. I mean, is there a concern that they'll be back as insurgents? Is there a concern that this will motivate others to do the same thing, whether in Colombia or someplace else? What's the consequence of, of all of this? Two things. One, the return of cocaine business as a, as a way of life that not only might benefit the FARC but others. So that's a challenge, and we better tackle that soon. Second, incentives. There's, for many criminal organizations and structures, the idea that at the end, despite your crimes, you might get some treatment. And I think at some point we have to make a clear statement on where is the red line that nobody else can ever cross again. I think that those two are important. Other than that, I believe we have had some progress, an important progress. We are resilient. No doubt that security is better today than it was 10 years ago. But if we don't uh, watch that and we do not correct what is necessary to correct, we might backslide a little bit. And this is what you don't want. You want to keep moving forward. So on this issue, Juan Carlos, you took a stand against uh, your own president, the man who made you defense minister. And I know that he shot back at you. Uh, That must have been difficult. Well, no doubt. You know, let me put it this way. Uh, I will have always positive and warm sentiments for the person of the president. I have many reasons to feel like that, you know, and to and to be loyal to the persona of the president, of him as human being and individual. But definitely, when you are responsible for policy and when you are responsible for leadership, always... You have to keep yourself with the country and with your values than with individuals. And this is where you have to separate. One thing is the loyalty to a person and the gratitude for the things that you were granted. But the other is to change your values or accept things that you know will have negative consequences as a matter of fact. By the way, I feel, you know... uh, kind of uh, in comfort with me because I warned this privately in policy meetings, in different spaces, even in public I gave signals, and I was not necessarily followed. So I think I had to make it clear. And now when I see where we are, I'm not saying I, I had a crystal ball before and I was so smart to be able to tell what was going on. But I think I was at least having the sense that keeping some balance Mm -hmm. was necessary. And I'm pretty sure that if, you know, government people today could go back and see what has happened and see what I was telling, maybe they would adjust and maybe we would be in a better position. Now, long term, I insist we, I'm not saying we are uh, in the past already, but the risk is there. Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back with more of our conversation with Colombia's Juan Carlos Pinzon. Do you hear that? That's the sound of the world changing. 
of networks connecting, enemies evolving. You can't slow it down. You can't avoid it. You can't stop it. But you can stay a step ahead. Every day, Raytheon engineers are innovating, modernizing, delivering trusted, innovative solutions that protect people, information, and infrastructure. So as our world changes, we can make it a safer place. Shifting from the FARC in, in your own country to Venezuela, Juan Carlos, could you characterize how you see what is happening in Venezuela and its impact on the region and in particular Colombia? The Venezuela reality is uh, a one that everybody should be warned of. What I feel there is that uh, through democracy, they destroy democracy. It sounds a little bit weird, but it's exactly what happened. They use the mechanisms that democracy offers to get to power. But once they got to power, they decide now to use democracy not as a system for prosperity and uh, public expression and freedom, but as a system to validate the destruction of the institutions as we know it. Mm -hmm. It's very dramatic what has happened in Venezuela. I think it's very difficult to imagine how that regime can come back. We wish it happened, you know, just for them to step back from what they have done. But it's very difficult to think how they will do it. And of course, what is worse is that they have tried in the past to promote their model into other countries by supporting a populist and extreme, uh, extreme leaders that might want to repeat what has happened in Venezuela. You know, democracy should be warned about this, and I think we should be acting to avoid that that occurs. How big an impact on Colombia are these refugees? It's a very big impact. I estimate that there are more than a million people already from Venezuela inside Colombia. And of course, we need and we should be very welcoming to these people. These are our Venezuelan brothers. Colombia and Venezuela, remember, they, we were born the same day, same hour, founded by the same man, Bolívar. We were a big country. It was the great Colombia. That was the country we had. Very soon, it broke apart, you know. And now we're different countries, but we're not different people at the end. And the connections are very similar. Many Colombians in the past were Im immigrating to Venezuela and had a life there. Now they're returning. So we need to be uh, fair and understand that this is a humanitarian duty. You know, these people are coming in fear and hunger. But by saying that, we have to be pragmatic. What has this brought to Colombia? It's more people competing for public services, social services. It is creating a competition for jobs. And at the same time, it is creating a security challenge. This is not good. And this creates some unrest from, you know, regular people in the streets. Mm -hmm. They are feeling not comfortable with this happening. On the other side of the story, I would be a little bit critical with ourselves not to put together a refugee uh, system, a refugee capability that needs to be funded by many other countries as it happens in Syria or in other parts of the world where this kind of major humanitarian crisis uh, happen. I think we need to be more effective and careful about it. 
So what should we do about this? What should the international community, the region, do about this? What's the proper role of the United States, do you think? Well, first of all, I think awareness. This that is going on in Venezuela cannot continue to happen without everybody watching. For a long time, the Venezuela affair was underestimated. And nobody believed in Chavez. Then nobody saw Maduro as a, as a serious uh, leader. Suddenly, they have gained all ways of power. They have starved their population. They have uh, destroyed institutions. But they are in power. So this is not a minor event. Venezuela is not a, an isolated island in the Caribbean, to put it in perspective and to sound uh, you know, analogic to, to what I mean. This is a large country. You know, it's, it's a serious country of more than 30 million people uh, that requires to be, you know, reviewed and analyzed. Second, I think we cannot underestimate the potential interest of uh, extra-regional powers about what is going on in Venezuela vis-a-vis -vis the whole geopolitical, you know, game plan in the world. So I think it needs to be watched as well. On other uh, affairs, I believe we need to plan for pressure on the diplomatic side in terms of, you know, validating democracy and freedom. I think OAS is doing an effort, so I think it's a good uh, process undergoing. And second, from Colombia perspective, I, I think that keeping an eye on provocations that uh, we have seen in some cases from Venezuelan armed forces is important. I think there's a consensus in Colombia not to fall into those. But, you know, as many times as it happens, the risk increases and it's an issue to, to watch. Do you have a sense of how this will end in Venezuela? Honestly, no. You know, uh, when you think about a regular democracy, you think that when the economy is so bad, what will happen is a change of regime. Mm -hmm. Here is not happening. It didn't happen already. I feel they have created already a pseudo-dictatorship system in which doesn't matter what happens in the economy, doesn't matter what happens in public opinion, it is irrelevant. You know, they have consolidated power. So the change in Venezuela looks... There are two ways. One, they really decide to make it, make it from their own side. We wish. That will be good to know and see. But usually those regimes do not move in a different way than they have been performing. The other one is waiting to see when and how they just implode. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think that's risky too. Mm -hmm. So I think... It's necessary to have a good set of people and policies thinking mm -hmm. for the good of that country, for the good of the Venezuelan people, but understanding the real consequences and even geopolitical consequences of what is going on there. Yeah. What about Central America? It's getting a lot more attention now, what's happening in Nicaragua and the economic situation in Honduras and Guatemala and the violence. And what's your sense of Central America? Very challenging as well. I think that uh, the case of Nicaragua, is not so far from the one in Venezuela. By the way, those two regimes are interconnected and somehow their behavior is a little bit the same. 
every time there's a protest, every time there's social unrest, the reaction is violence and coercion. So I think it, there's a pattern that we need to watch. And this is why I said we cannot underestimate this anymore. And uh, regimes that, can, that will come with similar behavior need to be watched. Or somehow we, people that believe in democracy, need to somehow unify and find ways to avoid those extreme populism agendas to come over. Now, in the case of other Central American countries, I'm always worried about the drug trade as mm -hmm. well. Drug trade is happening. Uh, of course, Colombia is in the middle of that circuit. Uh, and we need to continue to collaborate in the same dimensions we have thought in the case of Colombia. One dimension is having an effective counter-narcotics cooperation strategy in the region that needs to be emphasized, strengthened. And from the United States perspective, I believe there are more assets to be delivered into those areas, to detect, to seize, to uh, interdict more of this. Yeah. But second... It happens easily in these communities because those are communities in poverty with lack of education and with lack of opportunities. How do we create in these areas prosperous economic activities? Mm -hmm. That got to be a big obsession and the big answer at the end. Yeah. I would add something here too, though, um, which I always felt when I was working on thinking about the drug problem is couldn't agree with you more about the need to to focus on counter-narcotics, but there's also a need in the United States to deal with the demand problem. I'm happy you said that. Because <laughs> as, long, as long as the demand is there, right, the supply will find a way. If you clamp down on it in Colombia, then it ends up spilling over someplace else, right? It, it's actually more, I think, of a demand problem than of a supply problem. I absolutely uh, agree with you. And by the way, a challenge I would say now for Latin America not only Colombia, but other countries, including Brazil, Chile, Argentina, even Central America, is that consumption is starting to uh, raise up mm. also in young communities uh, in our countries. Because one of the ways you pay for distribution sure. is with the product. Absolutely. Right? So, so it's something I'm, I'm concerned, and we're starting to talk about gangs and uh, small traffic, micro-traffic, we call it, which is very challenging and at the same time creates security stress at very local level. So those issues need to be seen in a comprehensive way. Yeah. But I cannot agree more with you. Here in the United States and European countries, uh, tackling the, the consumption issue is a matter of uh, real solution to all these problems. So Juan Carlos, you were trained as an economist, as, as I was. And I'm wondering, based on that, how you think about the Trump administration's approach to trade policy. One thing that has saved my good relationship with the United States is never getting into, you know, uh, giving opinions on your own internal affairs. But trade is not an internal affair. Trade is a global issue. And we have discussed on trade as a tool to promote prosperity. You know, you sell your excesses, you find markets, then you get a good amount of money, and that money results into you know, spreading into more jobs and more We've had a long-term global understanding of that very point. Absolutely. And that we, all of us were kind of focused on, on discussing that. Suddenly, you know, there's this uh, problem of equilibrium 
between different economies. Some are exporting too much, some are importing too much, some jobs are getting lost, and, you know, that's a real challenge also. I believe the discussion in the years to come needs to be a balanced one. I don't think blaming trade or trade agreements as a source of problem is a good idea. On the contrary, I think, you know, even among difficulties we might describe, trade has brought, you know, opportunities from different points of view. But what cannot be at risk is quality of life of certain communities because the product they were selling is not anymore a good one. And of course, the duty of the state is to care for people at the end. It's people what matters, not good policies only. You know, good policies are, are as good as they are if they have an effect on people. So I think the next generation of policy discussion should include this and definitely trade policy mm. as well in a pragmatic way but in an effective way. With regard, Juan Carlos, to President Trump, how does the Colombian public view him? I mean, is there, are, are there mixed views? Is there a dominant view? How, how do they think about what is, in the United States, a, a rather different situation for us than normal? <laughs> well, Colombia will not be the best example for measuring an American president. In general terms, in Colombia as opposed to most of Latin countries, and I guess to many countries in the world, the United States has a positive image. So whomever leads the United States is seen as an important, uh, relevant person. Now, when you get to the individual and compare and see what people think, there are two facts. One, well, the numbers of President Trump as compared to the numbers of other American presidents are not as good. Maybe in Colombia are better than in other places, are not, are not as good as compared to others. I think that's a matter of perception. Now, on the other side, when you talk to the business community, even in Colombia, they like him very much. And they openly say that, you know, they see pragmatic policies, pro-business policies, and those policies Tax as reform, of now at deregulation. least... Sure. Yeah. As of now are seen by uh, entrepreneurs and private sector as a good idea to create jobs. I think... We got to wait a little bit uh, to see long-term, you know, the more real implications of, of what is going on. Well, Carlos, you've been terrific sharing your time with us. Just one more question. You did not come out on top in the recent presidential race in Colombia, and I'm wondering what's next for you. I can't imagine that you are done serving your country. <laughs> You're so kind. Well, first, I didn't like to lose. You know, uh, it's, not, it's not a pleasant situation. I was on this, trying to serve my country. And unfortunately, to serve my country this time, I had to uh, prevail in elections and win. And I didn't get that result. So, sure, it's not, a, it's not the, the outcome you, you wanted. But at the end, you have to be patriotic. So my first point right now is we have a new president. What was said in elections is set. You know, the electoral process passed already, but we cannot keep campaigning. Now we have to think about the real problems for the country. And maybe this is not so political approach, maybe more patriotic approach, if you want, but that's the way I want politics to be. Mm -hmm. You know, I think we need to support the current president. 
It doesn't mean you cannot criticize certain issues, propose, suggest, or even disagree on certain policies. But in general terms, we have to uh, surround this president in a way he can create consensus and be effective on certain policies that are good for everyone in the country. If the country goes well, it's good for all. That's the way I see it. To the future, I guess, as I said in a public statement the day I ended uh, my, my campaign trail, I always will be ready to serve with my experience to the country. But serving the country not always is in office. Mm-hmm. You know, you can do it from sure. outside, from different positions, even from private sector. And, of course, I will keep my eyes open all the time on what is going on in my country and ways I can support. That's great. Um, Juan Carlos, thank you for being with us. It, it, it is always good to see you, whether you are on a tarmac in Bogota or a studio here at CBS <laughs> News. Thank you. You're so kind. It's a great pleasure to see you, Mike. Thank right. you so much. You're welcome. That was Juan Carlos Pinzon. I'm Michael Morell. Please join us next time on Intelligence Matters. This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell, sponsored by Raytheon. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Claire Himes. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.